Well, as many of you know, a group of over 30 of us, I think, are going to Panama this summer, and so we've had a few training sessions. We've got a few more to go, and one of those um, training sessions, we've been learning about etiquette, uh, you know, like etiquette for how to act when we're in Panama, and like etiquette of a formal nature is not really what we have in Bellingham, right? I mean, like we go out to eat in a hooded sweatshirt, shorts, and flip-flops, and that's proper attire for, for Bellingham, right? Um, it's even been known that some pastors have even tuck their shirt in this town. I mean, it's so crazy. Um, and while formal etiquette isn't very important in Bellingham, we still have etiquette, right? Like, if you've ever got a stink eye from a bike rider by accidentally, like, rolling your car into one of those new green zones or or the yellow, I'm colorblind, so that's part of my problem. But, you know, they're kind of confusing. Or if you've gone out to eat and felt like that freeze up of like, where do I put my trash? There's 14 receptacles. I'm not sure where the lid goes in the straw and all this stuff. So our, our etiquette kind of enshrines our cultural values, our norms. It's the way we express what's important to us as a culture. Our Panama team's been learning some proper etiquette. For example, when you enter a room in Panama, what you're supposed to do is shake everybody's hand and greet everyone in the room. If you don't greet someone in the room, but you greet almost everyone else, then that person thinks you don't like them anymore. And similarly, we've learned that before you leave a room in Panama, you're supposed to shake everyone's hand and say, nice to meet you, or goodbye, or something like that. Um, women sometimes greet, greet another woman with a kiss on the cheek, just one kiss on one cheek, not like some countries you do the double cheek. Um, Women sometimes will greet a man with one kiss on the cheek, and then the man can reciprocate, but men should never initiate that one kiss with a strange woman, so guys don't get any ideas. You shouldn't try that one. And one thing we learned that you never do in Panama, uh, as with many Latin American countries, is throw something at someone. So, you know, Corey and I are getting pretty good at, oh, did you remember to lock the door? Here are the keys. You throw it out the, the car window and the catch, and we've got that pretty good. Or at dinner, when you pass the tortillas, you know, tortillas fly really nicely at the dinner table. <laughs> But that is not okay in Panama. Uh, hand me the screwdriver. You, hand, you, know, you, don't, you don't pass that. Now, why is all of this important? Of course, because our social etiquette reveals what's really important to us, reflects our values. And when we go to Panama, we want to respect our hosts, and so we want to express that through our etiquette. But, but Sometimes something happens in cultures, in society, in history that is so significant that it changes the whole value structure of a community. Etiquette is transformed to reflect a new reality. Now, many of you have probably seen the show Downton Abbey, and unless you've lived under a rock, you've probably heard of Downton Abbey. Um, it's a you know, period piece that takes place in the turn of the 20th century. Actually, the first episode uh, is the day that the Titanic sinks, so that kind of sets when it takes place. The show revolves around the Grantham family and their estate called Downton Abbey, which is this massive house, more like a miniature castle than a house uh, the nobles are led by Lord Grantham, and the, he's the senior male figure of the estate. The noble women who live uh, in the Grantham household have roles in society, but no real like vocational jobs uh, as far as like a profession. Meanwhile, the workings of the house are run by servants, a butler and footmen and maids and ladies' maids and cooks and a chauffeur. The staff outnumber the family in episode one, season one. 
The family dines on the choicest foods and wines. They live upstairs. They have servants that feed them and clean up after them. And for some reason, the women can't dress themselves, so they have ladies' maids that put their clothes on for them. Their lives consist of fancy balls and fox hunts and social engagements, while the servants work long hours, live below the main floor, eat modestly and very separately from the family. And of course, in those days, at least in season one of Downton Abbey, nobody complains. It's just the way things are. In fact, the nobles are seen as doing a service for the community by employing all of these people. Over the course of time, a massive shift in economic forces and cultural shifts take place in, in history, but also in the show, Downton Abbey. And the women begin taking more responsibility and running of the businesses. Uh, some of the servants got an education and began to get professional jobs like teaching and uh, accounting and things like that. Uh, new realities in the culture began to change the values, and so etiquette was transformed to reflect the new reality, such that a chauffeur actually married one of the noble women. Spoiler alert. No, not, come on, who's not on season one yet? Come on, it's your fault, people. <laughs> Followers of Jesus believe that the most significant single event in history was the career of the earthly Jesus, the, the birth and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The fact that God would become a human being was absolutely mind-bending. That he died in our place to forgive us is the most gracious sacrificial act imaginable. And the experience of his resurrection for those early disciples was so unexpected, so outside of anything that people had ever seen or heard of or expected that they really struggled to find categories for how to describe it. All they knew, all these early disciples attested to was that since Jesus died and since he rose from the grave and death was defeated, that the world would never be the same. Life would never be the same. History will end in some way in hope because death's back was broken by Jesus. Meanwhile, the church struggled and still struggles to figure out how the resurrection of Jesus, how his kingship and the promise of new life actually plays out in the real world. How does it actually matter? And one of the churches that struggled most with this new reality was the church in Corinth. Paul ministered there and wrote a letter to them in the mid-50s A.D., and part of the struggle for Corinth, as we've mentioned time and time again, is that it was multicultural and multi-ethnic. Corinth is in Greece, but at that time it was a Roman colony amongst, surrounded by other Greek culture. Okay? It was a major shipping port, which means that people, cultures, religions, philosophies, stuff from all over the world, people from all over the world were converging on this one place. It was a melting pot. And the church seems to have reflected this kind of diversity. Paul's letter to the Corinthians is largely made up of a series of pastoral theologizing about how this new reality would impact the Corinthian church, trying to figure out how do we follow Jesus in our real world because it's so diverse and nothing is monochrome and nothing is, is assumed. Now, we may not have the exact same cultural issues that the Corinthians did, but we can learn a great deal about how to navigate our own situation by remembering what is important to Jesus and to his church. 
And with that, we're going to enter into our text this evening. So I want to invite you to stand as we read 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 34. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together for worship, not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat of the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper and devours it. And one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Should I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But A man must examine himself, and in so doing, he's to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number have died. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we're judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, When you come together to eat, share with one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, helping the Corinthians to set things straight, to see what the priority is in gathering together. And I pray that that would translate to us today in Bellingham in the 21st century. Speak to us, Lord. Amen. Our text this evening picks right up where we left off last week, and if you weren't here last week and didn't get a chance to catch that message online, I just really encourage you to do that, not because it was such a great sermon, but because it deals with one of the harder, more misunderstood texts in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. And um, I think we did a pretty good job of walking through that, and it helps build on this one. So I just encourage that if you haven't had a time to listen yet. Um, The gist of last week, because it builds into this week, is that certain women and certain men were putting their own rights and their own ego above the good of the church. In response, Paul calls them to sacrifice their pride for the sake of unity in the church. 
And this, mex- this message that we're going to look at this evening is very, very similar in thrust. And what I'm going to do is give you the general issue that I think Paul is dealing with in this text. Then we're going to look at some of the significant actual words in the passage. And along the way, as we're working through it together, I hope to express some of the implications I think uh, the text might have for us today. Okay? So the main issue surrounds mealtime of the gathered church, specifically the Lord's Supper or communion as we call it here. To get to the heart of the issue, I briefly want to outline the etiquette people were used to by looking at three different types of meals, three different types of meals. So the first meal, and cohort kids, I know you might be taking some notes, so this is some of the meaty stuff. Um, The first meal I want to talk about is the Passover meal. Uh, I'm going to talk about the purpose, the procedure, and the protocol for each of these meals, all right? So the purpose of the Passover meal is to remember God's gracious rescue of Israel from slavery in Egypt. In biblical terms, when we remember something, it's more than just mentally recalling it. It means that we are participants in that meal. So in the Passover liturgy, uh, It speaks about the events of the Passover, which happened a long time ago, as if they were happening to us in person. The Passover is designed to remind people of God's faithfulness in a world that is constantly trying to say, there is no faithfulness, and there's certainly no God who is faithful. Now, the procedure of the Passover is set by Scripture and tradition. Its date is based on the lunar calendar, and it takes place once a year in the springtime. It's a meal shared by family and friends, everyone in the community of Jewish faith, whether rich or poor, and in the Bible, whether it's slave or free. If they're part of that community of faith, even as a servant of a Jewish family, they're included in this meal. Social class barriers are broken down. The man of the house, or the assembly, would begin by blessing the bread, actually blessing the God, who is the giver of the bread, Uh, but it's the youngest child. So you have, look at the the span of power, the oldest or senior male, but then it's the youngest child who begins the liturgy by asking, why is tonight different than any other night? The protocol was hospitality, joy, shared experience, equal sharing in the elements and the meal and communal worship. So everybody ate the same stuff, the kids, the parents, the slaves, the masters of the house. It's all together. So that's the first meal. The second meal that would have influenced the Corinthian church uh, were pagan meals. The purpose of the pagan meal was to honor one of the many gods in pagan culture and to earn their favor. So you want good crops, you go to the god who's in charge of that. You want fertility, you go to the goddess who's in charge of that. You want military victory, there's someone else for that. Political advancement, well, there's a whole slew of people you've got to impress for that. Okay. The procedure included a wealthy man who would then host this pagan meal either at his home in a big courtyard, in a public square, or a public temple. Only men who were invited to this dinner could come and participate. The women and children were left out. The wealthy host would then buy food and wine, and it would be of different qualities. So here's the protocol. The wealthy would invite his wealthy, powerful, influential friends, and they would sit at a table right here. They would have the best meat, the choice wine, exotic fruits. It would be uh, 
almost a gluttonous experience. In fact, it was. Right next to them, they would also bring in working class, low class, and any slaves that they needed to influence. They would sit within earshot and definitely within sight of the rich table, only they would have stale bread, sour wine, old fruit, if any fruit at all. And it was on purpose. It was to shame the lower class people so that the lower class people felt indentured, in need of, and definitely knew their place in society was like this. The purpose for the wealthy was to stand out and to shame the lower classes, to drive home the point that the lower classes are dependent on the wealthy. And so therefore, they would give them their loyalty. And by the way, there wasn't a lot of complaining because it was a free meal. And they wouldn't maybe have had any food to eat if they weren't invited to that meal. Interestingly, this is a total aside, so fun to nerd out and read about all this stuff. But Pliny the Elder uh, and others have these vast writings where they are invited by rich people to their table. And it drives them crazy. They see the inequity and it's starting to bother them uh, even in those early centuries, uh, late B.C., early A.D. It's starting to bother them, the inequity. So don't just think that everyone was just fine with the situation. It was the situation. It was how things were but there was beginning to be some people critiquing it, okay? So we have our Passover meal, which if you were from a Jewish heritage, that would have been normal. They, we had the pagan meal, which if you were non-Jewish and you lived in, in, in Corinth, you would have had that influence because that was Roman and Greek style, okay? Now let's talk about the third meal, the Lord's Supper, which we have spread out up here. Uh, the Lord's Supper is the central ritual of Christian worship. Jesus was Jewish, right? Not, not pagan. And when he hosted his Last Supper, as we call it in the Bible, uh, the one that Brent read about earlier, um, he was likely hosting a Passover meal. And ever since that meal, the church has been practicing communion together. The purpose of communion is to commune <laughs> in two directions. By taking the bread, which represents the body of Jesus, and by drinking of the cup, which represents the blood shed for us, we are mysteriously communing with Jesus. We're taking his life, his character, himself into us. Communion is a statement that says Jesus is not dead, and we are with him, and he is with us. The other direction of communion is horizontal. We commune together. We share from a common loaf and cup because we are one in Christ. It's not just our little group here at Lettered Streets that's one in Christ. It's the church around the world. We're united through the mystery of communion. And you know, I wish we would act like it, but that's a whole other sermon. Um, The procedure of communion has looked differently over the years and depending on what church movement we're a part of, but there's some basic things about communion that are fairly standard. There is generally a retelling of the story, and most often it's through these words of Paul's. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. We we tell that story. And there's a time of confession for the forgiveness of sin, and there's a time of absolution or declaring over the congregation that those who confess their sin to Christ are forgiven and made new. There's the physical act of eating the bread and receiving the cup. 
the protocol varies depending on which church you're part, part of. Some churches pass out the elements. We pass the trays and have little things. Some churches have kneeling benches where you come up and make the sign of the cross and maybe even drink out of the cup. And some churches like ours do a hybrid where we have stations up forward and we dip the bread into the cup and it's gluten-free and the stuff doesn't soak in very well and it's just a mess. But that's what we do because we love people. <clears throat> Many churches in the Roman Empire before Constantine were small, 20 to 50 people at most. They met in homes, not like house churches like inside living rooms, but in the courtyards because they were made like U-shaped. And even though the Passover meal, which was the first Lord's Supper, was once a year, these Christians began to practice it every time they gathered and at least once a week on Sunday, which was the day that the Lord rose from the grave. They transformed their ceremonial etiquette from Passover to the Lord's Supper. Why? Because it reflected a new reality. In those days, there was no such thing as a weekend like we know it, like the five-day work week, six days for some of us, seven I know for some of you, you should stop doing that. Um, but it wasn't even a thing, and Sundays were not special at all in the Roman Empire. So slaves, working class, would have to get up and go to work early on a Sunday, so what they would do is gather early in the morning, and they would take a simple meal, and they would take communion together, the rich and the poor alike. The rich would host, the poor would come, they would take their communion together. And sometimes they would meet back up again in the evening after work for a supper together, for dinner, and they would do communion again. Now, here's the rub for Paul. It appears that some of the Corinthian Christians, most likely who the ones who were pagan before they were converted to following Jesus, it seems like some of them in this passage were thinking of this meal uh, they were having together as the church as one of the pagan dinners. In verse 20, Paul writes, when you meet together for worship, it's not even to eat the Lord's Supper, because he, what he's saying is what you are doing is not the Lord's Supper. That's not what this is about. For in your eating, each one devours his own food, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Don't you have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? Now, we already know from numerous historical documents and allusions earlier in this letter that during this time, there was a massive grain shortage in the Mediterranean world, including Corinth. And what that meant was that the price of grain went way up and its availability was way down. And so if you were rich, you could weather that storm because you could afford the higher prices. But if you were poor, you could barely make ends meet. So there they are gathering for church and some of the wealthy were practicing this pagan style dinner and devouring these choice foods and meats and grains in front of everyone who had little or nothing to eat at all. In fact, so little that Paul says some were hungry while others were filled to the point of drunkenness and gluttony. That's why he remarks in verse 19, there must be factions among you so that those who are approved may be evident among you. Paul's probably being sarcastic and he's probably saying something like this, no wonder your church is divided. Some of you are trying your hardest to stand out and be special just like you did at the pagan meals. So Paul calls them out on this issue, and then he gives them the reason why it's wrong. 
He reminds them of why their pagan dining etiquette is no longer appropriate. And the way he reminds them is by bringing them back to the central Christian practice of the Lord's Supper. Whole books are written on that little passage in 1 Corinthians 11 uh, on the night Jesus was betrayed, you know, the, the words of institution. But let me cut to the reason I think Paul quotes them. He's bringing the church back to basics. First, he roots the central practice uh, in church history. On the night Jesus was betrayed, This is not some ritual that the church made up. It's not some rite of passage or a secret handshake. It was something that was started by Jesus in time, in space, as a person. On a specific night in history, he allowed himself to be betrayed unto death for the forgiveness of any person who would trust in him for that forgiveness. And then by repeating the words that Jesus Uh, took the bread and blessed it and broke it, Paul is reminding the church that the Lord's Supper comes from the Passover tradition and not from the pagan meals. And then the part about Jesus equating his body and blood with, uh, with bread and wine for us, well, it puts every single person in the church on equal ground. We all need forgiveness, no matter what our status or our wealth or our education Our position inside the church and outside the church is really irrelevant when we come to the table of Jesus. There's not one person who outranks another person in terms of access to Jesus. And kids, I know this sometimes can be confusing because you always see me up here and I wear the fancy robe sometimes and I have the stole. A pastor is no closer to Jesus than anyone else. Um, In fact, what a pastor is, is someone who the church has said, hey, we want to set someone aside and pay them to study the word and to bring truth each week, and we want you to be that person because we have other vocations to do, and we want you to do that part. That does, that, that, I'm, I work for Jesus, and I hopefully am working on your behalf, but I am not any closer. So, so at this, everybody's at the same level when we're at the table, when we're at church together. It's one loaf and one cup, and it's meant to communicate that we are one body, one family through our faith in Jesus. So when we participate in communion, we remember the Lord. And remember, remember, the opposite of remember is not to forget. The opposite of remember is to dismember. And that means that remembering Jesus in communion, in a sense, is to become whole as his community, to be his body on earth. Finally, Paul says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, our participation in communion, our actions preach. Our actions in participating in this meal without any words, preach. You have to appreciate that in the first century, as in many places in the world today and in many cultures and, uh, uh, are, are split across ethnic lines, across religious lines, across gender lines, across socioeconomic lines. Many religions even still enforce these distinctions. Um, Confucianism for one, has these real striated divisions. Uh, But Christianity from its outset, 
has been different in theory. In practice, we've been deplorable. But from the outset, Christianity has been different. And we know that from Jesus, and we know that from Paul, and we know that from the Word of God, which is where we should take our our foundation from. It's a movement that recognizes differences, recognizes differences, so we don't say there are no differences. Christianity recognizes differences and then says, in our differences, we're one body in Christ. In his letter to the Thessalonians, Paul writes, the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. The church in Thessalonica was putting their communion life to practice by being hospitable to people in a radical way. Their love for one another became so well known to surrounding communities that the church was known in the world as a place uh, where traditional etiquette of separateness was abolished and was transformed into an etiquette of acceptance for the people of faith. Somehow, this new community of people who trusted and followed the risen and reigning Jesus was able to put their economic and and ethnic and gender distinctions and make them secondary to being part of the family of God. That's one of the things I, I love personally about what we do every Memorial Day weekend for the last several years. When we join with other churches, we don't have our own little worship gatherings, but we join together traditionally at Mount Baker Theater. This year it's at Bellingham High with Presbyterians and Baptists. And this year uh, we're going to have many of the Spanish-speaking church plants from the county Uh, the uh, Filipino-American church that meets downtown. We're all gathering together. Daryl Johnson's going to preach, and we're all going to take communion together because it's a visible expression of what we really are. One family in Christ, even amongst all of our diversity. With all of this in mind, we now get to the part of the passage that has caused countless people unnecessary anxiety. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, shall be be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Many of us, me included, grew up in a tradition where communion was a somber time of reflecting how bad we are. And if we didn't feel particularly bad, then we were worried that we weren't examining ourselves very closely. And if we didn't examine ourselves close enough, God might be angry and zap us. Let me say some things as clearly as I can. First, communion has always been and should be a celebration. Another name for communion known through vast portions of the church is the Eucharist, which means the great thanksgiving, not the great fear factory. It's a celebration because it's the weekly reminder That while we are in need, desperate need for a Savior, we have a Savior in Jesus. So, each week we have an opportunity to repent of our sin and celebrate that we are forgiven when we confess that sin. And we celebrate that we have a new family in Christ. Second, 
In context, it is clear that participating in communion in an unworthy manner means to treat one another with contempt, with hatred. It means dehumanizing other people who call on the Lord. This text is not about morbid personal introspection. In fact, we as Americans have done a great job of taking this text and personalizing it for ourselves. It's just me and Jesus, so I got to get right with Jesus. You know what Jesus says and the Psalms say? You want to get close to the Lord? Who is allowed to climb the hill of the Lord? Who is allowed to go into the tent of the Lord? Those who treat their neighbor well, who don't put their money out at interest, who don't slander their neighbor. Right? These are the types of Psalm 15. These are the types of things that Jesus cares about. How we treat one another, people made in his very image. That is how we could take communion in an unworthy manner. By coming and saying, oh yeah, I'm one in Christ, and this is my family, and really treating each other poorly, like unhumanly. We are the body of Christ, so to sin against the body is to sin against each other. Third, this part about the Corinthians being weak and getting sick and even dying as a result of their sin, it's a serious deal. Let me just offer this. What Paul is not saying is that A equals B. That if you take communion improperly one time, or for a stretch or anything, that you're going to get sick and die. He's not saying that A equals B. But he is saying in this instance, hey, the church is sick, and sin is real, and it has effects on our bodies and on the body. Okay? And I think by revelation of God, Paul is acting like a prophet, and he's saying, let me tell you why you're sick, Corinthians, why some of you have died. It's because you are not being the body of Christ. It's because you are partaking in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. You are openly shaming each other when you ought to be united in Christ. So he is saying that that is why these things have happened to the Corinthians. Finally, what on earth does this mean for us? When we take communion together as a church at Lettered Streets, we don't like have a special line for people who make X amount of money and a special line for people who don't. Um, we don't like serve the grown-ups first and make the kids wait in the back, or we don't flip it around and do it the other way either. We don't like have men go first and then women. A- after worship, we eat dinner every week we eat the same food, like nobody brings their special food and, and everyone else eats like bad food. Like they don't make me eat brown rice. Someone always cooks white rice whenever we have rice. Thank you. <laughs> so, so outwardly, outwardly, we seem to be doing okay. But let's face it. I mean, that's pretty cultural for Bellingham. It's, we live in a place that likes to be nice. I like to be nice. But it's also easy to avoid our feelings under a mask of niceness. To be nice on the outside while inside seething about little perceived slights that, oh, that person didn't say hi to me or they never talked to me. I wonder why. And then building up stories in my head. Acting nice while inside judging each other and keeping tabs on protecting our rights. Boy, I sure do serve more than that other person. They never pull their weight. (laughs) Little 
little judgmental things that we let build up. We're great at being passive-aggressive in Bellingham. What would it look like? Dream with me. What would it look like? And kids, you can do this too. What would it look like to be transformed in our etiquette, which is a lame word, but just like how we actually express our values? What would it look like to be transformed in our workplace, in our schools? I'm sure that there's kids in school that you don't like, they're kind of annoying. What little things do we do to make them feel excluded? And could we make them feel more included? And grown-ups, we're just big kids. Like in many of our workplaces, there's that annoying person. Maybe it's you, I don't know. In me, it's mine, but we have a small staff and they don't have to work in my same house. So. But what would it look like to change the way that the world tells us to see, which is look out for your own rights, be, see people as a competitor instead of a person made in God's image? What would it look like to treat people intentionally with dignity and respect rather than as a problem to solve or an annoyance to deal with? Hear the good news. In Christ, we are new creations. Now let's live like it. Lord, would you help us to do that? Thank you for giving us new life, for wiping our slates clean. Help us to be people of thankfulness, people of humility, recognizing that we desperately need rescue from you. And let that level the ground we stand on uh, when we interact with each other and with others, Lord. May we be known as the church in Thessalonica as a place of hospitality and graciousness. May they know you through our love for each other, Lord. Amen.